This is Yudah HaKohen, Brit Chazon, Vision Magazine, Vision Movement, coming at you from the hills of Gofna. And this is the Next Stage Podcast. Joining me on the show is Rudy Rockman. Where are you joining me from, Rudy? I'm joining you from Kesalia, Israel. From Kesaria, okay, Kesaria, and I'm broadcasting from the Gofna Hills, Maccabee HQ, Gofna Hills, north of Jerusalem. So we're kind of spread across the land of Israel right now. A lot's happened in the last couple of weeks. The world's going crazy. Coronavirus is ripping through the planet. I don't know if the world we're going to come back to when this is over is going to resemble the world we knew before, but things are definitely changing. We're living in a time of upheaval. History is happening, and uh, it's not 100% clear where things are going, but something is changing, and we obviously hope it'll be for the best. Bezrat Hashem, that this is going to lead us somewhere better. I am actually more or less impressed with how the government of Israel has been handling the crisis. I think Israel, unlike many countries, is used to crises and actually functions best in situations of crisis. Often it's a military, often it's security related, but you, you see something in Israeli society when there are these crises, it's as if the soul of the nation wakes up. And all of the petty differences, all the things that normally separate us, that normally drive us into conflict with one another, suddenly fall away. And the nation as a collective kind of springs into action. And that's a lot of what we see here with the national reaction to the coronavirus uh, especially ahead of Passover, creating a lot of upheaval. We're a lot of unemployment, but we're hoping that uh, those in charge are able to guide us through this crisis in a way that will only make us stronger and only position us better to spread our light to the world. Definitely a very interesting time that we're living in. Um, there are a few points that I'd like to go a little bit deeper on. I think uh, when you have small events, like let's say something like 9-11 that happened in America, uh, that I was very young for, uh, it tends to affect the community for a year, two years, three years, but people mm-hmm. tend to forget these things uh, very quickly. But I think uh, Corona is something very different. It's something that has affected the entire world in, you know, the very quick manner. And it's something that uh, a lot of people fear. And I think uh, look back into their own lives and start to appreciate the fact that they have life, the fact that they have family and look at the things more so that they have and not only what they don't have, which changes us and breaks us out of this uh, uh, mindset that we've all been raised in of uh, everything is about uh, materialism. Um, and I think generations that have gone through similar things or even worse, like world wars or epidemics like the Spanish flu in 1918, uh, that that changes a generation and makes them mm-hmm. Uh, less prone to be so, uh, I guess, so easy to fight one another, so so quick to react violently and aggressively, uh, unless it's for something that actually means something. I think, uh, you know, going to a college campus, people were so quick to uh, demonize an entire side and, and antagonize another side and see everyone as an enemy, whereas when you're, you go through real-life situations, you appreciate life a lot more. And I do think in Israel specifically that... Uh, this country has experienced, and I mean, our nation has experienced crisis situations many times before. And it's sad that, uh, I mean, it's a great thing that we unite during the times of crisis, but it's sad that we haven't yet found something greater than a crisis to unite us uh, on. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of the conversation that we try to create with vision, with our movement, is to find what is that next chapter of Jewish history that can unite us based on that, right. that collectively achieves the aspirations of all sectors of Israeli society in order for us to move forward. 
Right, that's very well said. That that ultimately, as impressive as it is, when the nation wakes up, you know, when the collective soul kind of shows itself during times of crisis, ultimately, what we want is for that to occur when it's not crisis, when it's just uniting around advancing our people's aspirations forward, our people's mission forward, and to kind of get everybody on board with that from the different perspectives, meaning that I I think that ultimately our collective mission is so big and so all-encompassing that many different camps within Israeli society are actually capable of participating in its advancement from their own unique ideological vantage point. I don't think that we can ever expect the entire nation of Israel to get behind one political program. It's just not who we are. <laughs> it's like part of our national culture is actually machloket. That is part of what makes Israel Israel. Even if we were to unite with one political program, it would probably be a political program that's experienced differently from the perspective of each political camp involved. And that's ultimately what we're trying to create here at Vision, this holistic Jewish liberation ideology that actually creates space for all of the ostensibly rival ideologies within our camp to really uplift what's true and beautiful in all of the ostensibly warring sides and to have this kaleidoscope of Jewish political ideological tendencies. And we saw, by the way, you know, we just came out of this election. Uh, For those who don't know, Rudy and I were just leading the vision movement in elections to the World Zionist Congress and over 1,000 Jews in the United States did vote for us. Uh, They expressed a desire for fresh ideas, new conversations about meaningful participation in this chapter of our people's story. We came with a new message, with a clean ideological message. It wasn't about fear-mongering. If this party gets too much power, it's going to put us in a terrible situation. Or if that party gets too much power, we came with new ideas about participating in Jewish history. What are the goals of Jewish liberation in this generation? What's next? And uh, I think there were a lot of people who were looking to hear that. I think there were a lot of people who have been thirsty for that message, and we came and we provided it. And it was very much an educational campaign. I think for the first time, a lot of Jews who don't know us, meaning I think Jews who are activists on university campuses know who we are, they know our message, they're familiar with you and me as personalities. But beyond the college campus and beyond the activist community, I think this is really the first time a lot of these conversations were taking place. Yeah, and I think for the most part, we've definitely led a lot of conversations when it comes to ideas like Jews being indigenous or are Jewish people white? We've been sort of at the forefront of these conversations, which then eventually becomes mainstream. And then organizations tend to adopt these messages because they're going by what the masses already see uh, their own identity as. Uh, but for the first time, I think we were faced face-to-face with these institutions that mm-hmm. usually don't really engage with us or our content directly. They're more so engage with it once it's already disseminated and approved and accepted within a population. Uh, so and I think a down. lot of these, org- yeah, and I think a lot of these organizations were like, "Wow, these people are, you know, actually serious." And I think a lot of new people were able to engage with our ideas and be familiar with what we do, and we're going to take it to the next level uh, with the the World Zionist Congress, with our uh, seat that we received in the American Congress, with the seats that we have uh, in Israel, and we're going to be able to use that in order to create real change, not only to write the next chapter of Jewish history, but also to give the tools to the next Mm. generation, specifically also in the diaspora, that unfortunately are often too often trained to be uh, Jews in theory, but not Jews in practice. And what I mean by that is we're taught very important things like 
uh, you know, the history of the Torah. In the Torah, we're taught Birkat uh, Amazon and Filin and Shabbat, and we're taught about even maybe sort of like modern Jewish history with the wars of, uh, you know, 1948, 1967, uh, 1973. But we're, we're not taught this, the tools of how to be a Jew and practice in a world where anti-Semitism has always existed and is growing in a different way than that has existed in the past. And mm-hmm. that means how to be able to do uh, debates, how to talk about Israel to people more on the left, more on the right, how to be able to uh, stand up and be strong, uh, to have a mentality of not refusing to back down, uh, to be able to intellectually discuss uh, certain ideas and not do it only factually, but ideologically in a way that communicates a message with the audience that you're speaking to. When it comes to any movement attacking the Jewish people or the liberation of the Jewish people, most Jews today, especially in the diaspora, are not prepared for those situations or those conversations. Right. I think the essence is really making it real, making it real for Jewish students, knowing that they can participate in their people's story. One thing that our movement happens to be very good at is really shifting the psychological paradigm of students from, let's say, the American dream. I'd say that most you know, Jewish students on a university campus are brought up within the context of the American dream, that we are going to go to college, we are going to get a, a job, we're going to have a profession, we are going to marry, settle down, and we are going to live that lifestyle that is the desirable lifestyle as presented by the media and by X number of years of education, etc., And we psychologically shift them to live in the story of the Jewish people, to want to be characters in this chapter of our people's story, really one of the most amazing chapters of our people's story, uh, where we've actually come back to life. We're we're actually back on the world stage, but our story is, of course, not over. Yeah, so to add a a little bit more uh, depth to your saying, I think that when we change the mindset of a lot of these Jews growing up in Western societies and to make them feel as a part of the Jewish story, it's not to say that we're removing their micro aspirations of being successful and having families and having a good lifestyle. It's I think we're adding an additional element to their life, a macro perspective, that they're also a part of a collective. And that collective has a goal and has a mission. And I right, think we're that changing you, the context. Do, yes, and you, and you can do both. You can also achieve your own personal goals in life and family and security and everything that you want, or be a doctor and be a lawyer and, and do something, whatever your, your, your skill sets are, whatever your passions may be, your aspirations are, but also mm-hmm. be a part of something that's much bigger than that, that a lot of American Jews or diaspora Jews in general are very disconnected from. And I think one of the messages that really resonated very well during the campaign was this idea of wanting to use the Zionist movement as a vehicle to advance Jewish liberation to the next stage. To to ask the question, why is there a Zionist movement? Why is there a World Zionist Congress 53 years after the Jewish people returned to Zion, if not for the sake of identifying and achieving the next goals of Jewish liberation? And that's a conversation that no one else was having that I think really resonated with a lot of voters. So that's great. So first of all, thank you to all of the voters who trusted us, who gave us their vote, uh, who sent us to the World Zionist Congress. It was really uh, an honor to work on such an educational campaign with such a small budget, so few resources, and to push a new message that we really deeply feel the Jewish people are in need of hearing, are in need of discussing, and now begins the difficult work of building a movement. Now, on the campaign trail, I'm sure you felt confronted with a lot of questions. You know, you were basically 
doing a campus tour. I was doing a campus tour and we had this like larger campaign taking place and people were hearing messages from that campaign and then challenging us with their responses to that campaign because a lot of these mm -hmm. ideas were new ideas. So you want to share some of those experiences, things people asked you, things people challenged you with uh, while you were on the road? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so in my experiences on, on campus, on this campus tour that I did, uh, speaking for vision and, and getting our message out there, the two things that came up uh, most often was uh, not an understanding to why we are against the two-state solution and, uh, not, and kind of fighting back towards why we are against the foreign aid to Israel, which I think we should break down uh, those two points uh, today here in this podcast. Well, to go on the first point of uh, the why we're against a two-state solution before even engaging with any sort of solution. I believe that we need to figure out... Well, because we have honor. Uh, First of all, I think the real answer is because we have a sense of honor. We have a sense of homeland and we're not willing to divide it. Just like I'm not willing to share my wife with anybody. I'm not willing to divide my homeland. I think that's an answer right, that just like, I, needs to be out there and people need to think about. You know, when I was 14 years old, it was very clear that if somebody offers me peace in exchange for my jacket or my wallet or my shoes, the answer is no. And just because yes. some things are... It's not a question of the actual item. It's a question of honor. And Homeland... Well, not everyone has, so. has, has honor, unfortunately. I think that's one of the things well, that Well, not only that, I, that I think taught. part of the problem is that most people living in the United States or Canada, most people living in North America, with the exception of the native populations that were victimized uh, by the societies that were created there, most people don't have a conception of Homeland. You know, most people relate to territory as real estate. It's a commodity. You can mm -hmm. buy it, you can sell it, you can flip it. So when you start talking to a Jew living in New York or Los Angeles about trading land as a commodity for peace, or even for quiet, or even for, you know, an absence of conflict, something far less than peace, I think it sounds pretty good. And you hear people say things like, well, you know, land isn't worth dying for, or it's not worth going to war over land. Now, I agree with you. Before you even get to solutions, you have to have a conception of values. And I think one of the clear values that came out of the Vision campaign was that our homeland is not dividable. And there's nothing anti-Palestinian inherent in that message. In fact, we work with a lot of Palestinians who appreciate that message because it shows we're coming from a very, very deep place. We're not coming as colonizers. A colonizer might be willing to give up some land, some of the land he colonized. But if we're really relating to this as our homeland, or actually in Jewish terms, I would say we relate to this land as our soulmate. And mm -hmm. we're very clear about the fact that it can't be divided into two separate sovereignties. That's a message that makes sense. That's a message yeah. that people understand. Like you believe this is your homeland and you're not willing to divide it. Okay, so let's talk about what could be. So I think, you know, that, that for me is why I connect to the land of Israel, because it's our native land, it's the land of our ancestors, and it's the land of our descendants, and it's not up to me to give it away. It's not something that can be given away. It's a part of who we are. It doesn't um, belong to us. Me, it belongs to the past generations and the future generations who have yet exactly, to be born. Exactly, exactly. But I think that most people, even Jews today, don't necessarily understand Jewish identity on that deep of a level. Mm -hmm. So I think even before making that point, I usually make a point, first of all, that anyone engaging with this topic usually wants peace because they think that peace means a better future. But we both know that peace means a nonviolent uh, continuation of the status quo. So two or more parties that are in conflict are currently not fighting each other because it's not effective to fight each other at that time. But that doesn't mean they won't fight each other in the future. So what we want to achieve is not necessarily peace, but justice, 
right? We want to fix the situation. Right. And so I think most people looking at this conflict or engaging with this conflict, they want solutions that will stop the fighting. And so mm -hmm. I think before even talking about our indigenous claim, which is for me, the answer that I relate most to, I think we need to talk about how a two-state solution does not fulfill the aspirations of either populations and it does not solve the injustices of either populations. And so any sort of solution that will be created has to focus on those two. And if it does not have those two, then it will not be able to be a solution that will provide a better world in which when these you individuals say, want to relate When to. you say those two, you mean the grievances and aspirations of Palestinians and Israelis? And Israelis for both populations, right. meaning for, the, for the Jewish people and the Palestinian people to feel That's their right. grievances and That's aspirations right. addressed by whatever That's solution right. is and in our land. And I think I think giving that answer right away puts mm -hmm. kind of the burden on the person that is supporting of a two-state solution to be to answer mm -hmm. why does it fulfill the aspirations of both and why does it solve the injustice for both? And they can't say that. The reason why they tend to push out a two-state solution is either because they lack in creativity, meaning they see it as either one state or two state. And if I support one state, that means X, Y, Z. So it must be two state. They can't think out. They can't break out mm -hmm. of the paradigm of black, white, one, two, one, zero, right? Or because they generally think that this is what Palestinians want and they kind of want to put themselves in a situation where, yeah, I kind of still like Israel, but I want to play in the middle and be liked by both sides. But the reality is that neither Palestinians nor Israelis want a two-state solution because, again, it doesn't solve the injustices being committed and experienced on both sides, and it does not fulfill the aspirations that both populations need. So I think I right. start off with I, I, that by, by the way, I, I think it needs to be clear, there are definitely some Israelis and some Palestinians who do express a desire for two-state solution. But again, these are people who perceive it to be in their interests. And I think what we do need to and talk about And I think they also is, don't represent the masses. No, they don't. We're talking about elitists on both sides, yes. the westernized elites on both sides. But uh, another question we have to ask is how the two-state solution, how this very specific policy became synonymous with peace. But when you talk about peace in American Jewish circles and pro-Israel circles, in most political circles orbiting the center of, let's say, the American political spectrum, the assumption is a two-state solution is the solution. Like that is the way to solve this conflict. And that is kind of the imperialist solution. It Absolutely. has always been like in the Middle East, Mark Sykes and Picot came and they took a map and they drew lines on the map and they said, okay, this group will be here and this group will be there. And of course, that map was drawn up according to British and French interests. Right. Divide and conquer well. then cause both populations yeah. to see their aspirations as opposed to one another so that they're busy fighting each other rather than to the colonialists pushing their agenda. Right. And I think we need to contextualize the two-state solution as an extension of this. It's more lines on maps. It's more Western diplomats drawing lines on maps and dividing peoples, not according to their real identities, not according to their real conceptions of homeland, not according to their real values or their real tribal affiliations, but just according to very utilitarian Western designs. Many Palestinians, for example, are deeply connected to places like Nazareth, to places like Akko, to places like Haifa, Beersheba. Many Israelis are deeply connected to places like Hebron, Jericho, Beit El, Shiloh, Bethlehem. And this two-state solution would separate us respectively from all of these places that we find very important to us, to our national stories, to our histories, to our destinies. So I think that, you know, solutions definitely need to come from the bottom up. They need to represent the interests and identities of the peoples in question. And uh, the two-state solution is not that. But again, I think the, the question we need to confront, and I think the pro-Israel community in the United States needs to confront, 
is why has the two-state solution been sold as the only game in town? For example, most NGOs who receive official government support, NGOs in Israel, Palestinian and Israeli NGOs that are working towards peace, why does their ability to receive support depend on their advocacy on behalf of this one solution, the solution of the Western world. I mean, how can you start that way? When you're pursuing peace, you're working with Israelis and Palestinians trying to create a better relationship dynamic, trying to create a better future. And you start with this one very specific stale solution that's been the solution for, we can say 30 years, but really it's probably closer to 80 Really, uh, this has been the solution. All of the different studies that were done, all of the different proposals, peace plans until now have really focused on this two-state paradigm. And I think that we need to be able to give people space. Forget rejecting. Obviously, we rejected, but we should at least allow the intellectual space for people to explore other alternatives. And that's something the Jewish world isn't used to. We, we didn't even talk about the security issues and the fact that, you know, around 700,000 Jews live in Judea and Samaria with guns and what that would mean mm-hmm. to remove them, along with what happened in Gaza and, and how that would re- happen again in this area. And also how Judea and Samaria is higher ground than the rest of what is today Israel proper and how that's undefendable. Uh, so we're not even talking about... No, there are no that. answers for that. There, there, there are no answers there, for what there, you do with there, rockets rain down from the West Bank. additional elements that you know, haven't even mm-hmm. been discussed. But I think it all ties into the interests that certain countries have with aligning themselves with certain countries and also mm-hmm. pushing foreign policy, which comes to the next question that I was often asked and things that people had a hard time understanding was my position and our position of being against U.S. foreign aid. And the reason I... Uh, you know, I'm an activist for Israel and always talk about how I'm against U.S. foreign aid is not because I'm against the fact that a country wants to help Israel or wants to give money to Israel is because this is not money, it's credit. And what does that credit mean? It means that we must buy almost all of our weapons from the U.S. So all of our guns, uh, tanks, almost all of our guns, tanks, planes, bullets, magazines, and so on are manufactured in the U.S. And what does that cause? A complete dependency on the United States military industrial complex, right? That those jobs, instead of being created in Israel, are being created uh, in America. I was the one of the first units in the IDF when I served as a paratrooper from 2011 to 2013 to receive U.S. boots, whereas the drafts before me received Israeli-made boots, and that company in Israel went out of business. So we are completely dependent on the military supply of another country. Now, right now, when we're in a situation where we think that the U.S. is good for Israel, that might be fine. But long term, there are many things that can happen. The future of America can be against Israel. Uh, The future of America can continue to push policies that are not beneficial to Israel. The future of America can fall. You know, empires rise and fall. America, you know, in, in a generation or two, I'm not saying that it should, but it could at some point fall. And what do we do then? But along with this foreign aid, it also imposes certain things onto us, whereas we, co- we can't sell uh, military technology to certain countries and we're forced to sell it to other countries that are pretty bad. Uh, we can't buy military technologies or supplies from other countries unless going through the approval of the U.S. So if these policies uh, or this foreign aid, you would say, is, is supposed to be created to help Israel, then why are we prevented from buying weapons from other countries? Why are we limited as to who we can sell our own technology? And why are we forced to buy weapons and to create our own industry, which should be in Israel, and have that outsourced and buy from the U.S. and be completely dependent on them? 
which allows them to push U.S. policy onto us, which is not always beneficial to Israel and many times not beneficial. And I think that's the conversation we have to have. We're not against the fact that a country helps Israel. We're against the fact that this is not help. This is creating a dependency, a, a sort of like a, a drug addict addicted to a sort of drug. And we want to get off of that. What we're saying is that we want Israel to be completely dependent on itself to create those industries in Israel, those jobs in Israel. And for us to make sure that not only are we strong with our army, we're strong with the supplies that our army received. And the bottom line, I think, is that a nation can't be dependent and independent at the same time. Ultimately, we have to decide, are we looking to be an Amkhovshi Bartzeno? Are we looking to be a free people, an independent people in our land? Or are we looking to be a vassal of some empire somewhere else? And as you said, I think it doesn't make sense to chain ourselves to an empire in decline. Uh, and that's before even getting into any value judgments, like do we agree or disagree with U.S. foreign policy around the world? Before we even get to that question, we have to understand that most nations define their interests and then make alliances. Israel, unfortunately, is one of the only nations that first decides who it wants to be allied to and then kind of interprets its own interests based on how they can maintain that alliance. I think this is something that we really need to cure ourselves of. This is something that's deeply ingrained in the Jewish people. I think part of the problem is that when we were in exile for many, many centuries, we developed this habit of trying to attach ourselves to the power structure, whether it was the Duke, whether it was the Lord, whether it was the Kaiser, whether it was the Tsar. In any place we were, we felt ourselves dependent on the power structure for protection. And when the State of Israel was established in 1948, our Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, basically had this superpower patronage doctrine that Israel needs to connect itself to a superpower in order to survive. And one could argue that that was true in 1948. We might have been in a situation in 1948 and in the 1950s where we did require that kind of support, but today we're not that. It's also important to, to include with, with that piece that mm -hmm. in 1948, the U.S. did not support Israel, right? It was only no. after the Six-Day War in 1967 that the U.S. began to say, oh, wow, Israel is going to be one of the stronger countries in the region. Maybe now we should align ourselves with it. I mean, even nuclear weapons was given from France and not the U.S., so yes, what you're saying, uh, that the fact that we might have needed someone then, I think now we're in a conversation that we'd no longer need to be dependent on someone else. Right. And I think that we ourselves aren't always aware of our own power. We're not aware of our own power. And I think we need to be comfortable with power. That's part of our problem after so many centuries of powerlessness. Having power is a new experience for us, and it's something not all of us are comfortable with. And part of growing up as a nation, now that we've established a state, now that we have an army, we have a government, we have an economy, and we're figuring it out, we have to get comfortable with power. That means knowing how to use it appropriately, uh, not overusing it, not underusing it, uh, but also having the confidence of a nation that is powerful enough to pursue its own interests, to identify its own interests, to pursue its own interests, to defend its own interests, and not to try to attach itself to any superpower, whether it be France, whether it be the United States, Russia, China, doesn't matter. Israel needs to see itself as an independent country. And I think that's also part of having a vision to come and say, this is 
not only the way we want our nation to look, our country to look, the society we're creating here to look, but also what do we think the world should look like? What kind of world do we want to create? Because ultimately, we have to understand that the state of Israel is not the goal of our revolution. The state of Israel is really a tool with which to achieve the goals of our revolution. And I think we're living in a generation right now, you and I and, and everybody listening to us, we're living at a time where we've created the tool where we've built the body, but the body still needs a spirit. We need to decide what values, what identity, what vision is going to drive the state of Israel that's been created. Yeah, a child was born in, in 1940, or you would say reborn. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you grow up, you sort of go through all sorts of childhood infancy stages. But then at some point you reach your teenage adolescence age. And usually this is an age that's very confusing for a lot of people, a little bit rebellious. You answer back to your parents, you want to do this and you want to do that. And then at some point you reach the young adult stage of your life where you figure out who you really are. You figure out mm -hmm. what you really want to do and you start to pursue it. And I think that's the sort of chapter that we exist in with this generation. Of or, life or that's what we're trying history. to get to. I think yeah. we're transitioning from the adolescent rebellious stage to a more mature young adult stage. I think that's where we see the nation now or where we see the nation moving towards the Oslo years, the Aaron Barak judicial activism in the Supreme Court. The rampant westernization in our society expresses itself as a rebellion against the values, against the ideological paradigms that brought us home. And the truth is a lot of those ideological paradigms are outdated and don't really speak to this chapter of Jewish history and really don't speak to the challenges confronting us. And I think that's a lot of what people hadn't heard before our campaign. You know, this message of, okay, Zionism achieved X, Y, and Z, great, what's next? How are we going to participate in defining and achieving the next goals of Jewish liberation with the tools created by the Zionist movement? Meaning we want to take the conditions created by Zionism success and the tools of the Zionist movement to now identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish history. And that's big. That, that's a real paradigm shift for a lot of people because most people, even most people who voted in these elections, and this was the largest voter turnout in a long time, but we saw people really voting based on what team they support, right? What political tendency they connect to. And we came with a message that I think resonates a lot more with young people, but there were definitely some older people who supported as well. Well, wait a minute. We have all this. Where are we in history? Let's take a step back. Let's really analyze. When they write history books 200 years from now, what is this chapter going to be about? What are they going to be saying about this generation? What are the challenges confronting us? Who were the heroes that stood up? Who were the thinkers that really illuminated the path forward? And where did Israel go next? Like, what were the next achievements? What were the next things that we managed to make happen for our people? How did we bring this world closer to the world we want to see? And of course, in order to do that, you have to first define the world you want to see. But how did we advance a Jewish mission? And I think that is a message that people hadn't heard before and I think really found refreshing. I think so. And I, I think when we, we look at it, especially even in Israeli society, the society is very much so divided when there's no war or greater crisis situation that is, you know, plaguing the population. Whereas you see the right completely polarized against the left, the religious against the secular, the secular against the religious, the left against the right. And it's sort of like they're not trying to pursue a better world based on their worldview, they're more so trying to attack the other side that they've been told that is the antagonist to their own story. And so I think what's important is that 
each of these make up puzzle pieces of the same image, right? It's, there's one greater truth. We're all, once upon a time, we used to be physical tribes. Now we're ideological tribes. And each one of these ideological tribes actually holds something very true to it. So if you look at the right in Israel, the right often talks about security and identity, which is very important and fundamental. I mean, even to me personally, it's something that's been very important from a young age. And the left talks about humanity and justice and liberation and values. And why do these things have to contradict? Actually, they're two sides of the same coin. They very much so correlate with each other. Or when we look at the secular world and the religious world, the religious Jews are talking about preserving their heritage, preserving their values, preserving their, their connection to a higher power, preserving their mission statement and, 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 and things to do in this world. And the secular world and individuals are more so talking about being interconnected with the rest of the world and learning math and science and being modern. But again, why do these things contradict? They're actually very much so tied together. So I think whatever that future chapter of Jewish history, which we don't claim to be imposing on the generation, we want to start that conversation and to start uniting people to find what that solution is, find what that next chapter is, and actually go and achieve it. But whatever it will be, it will, be, will have to be something that unites the tribes and brings them all into one to pursue something that is greater and that allows all of us to see ourselves as victors in our own stories. Even those dividing lines that most Israelis and most diaspora Jews are conditioned to kind of see as the dividing lines are problematic when we talk about like religious versus secular or right versus left. These are really foreign concepts. I think those are mm -hmm. much more fitting to Europe or, or North America. I would say that in Israeli society, the dividing line is really between those who are psychologically living in Jewish history and those who are psychologically just kind of living in Western civilization in 2020. And as you said, I don't think those have to necessarily contradict. There is something very true being expressed by those who want to be connected to the rest of the world. And there's something very true, obviously, being expressed by those who are deeply connected to Jewish history, Jewish identity, the land of Israel, the Torah, our destiny, our mission in history. And ultimately, you know, this is the classic battle. This is the battle in Israeli society between the forces of Yosef and the forces of Yehuda. And we're having this conversation against the backdrop of a transitional generation. Because Yosef, mm. the aspect of our identity that really resembles the dominant civilization in the contemporary world, they built the country. They were the Zionists. They were the ones who built the country. They were the ones who built the infrastructure. They were the ones who built the army and the economy and the governing institutions. And slowly they see themselves losing control. They see other sectors of the population, or as you said before, other tribes rising and becoming increasingly dominant in different areas of Israeli society. And you see it very clearly, I think, in the confrontations between the Knesset and the Supreme Court, or the government and the Supreme Court sometimes. It's interesting that Israelis tend to use the word democracy as a synonym for westernization. I remember years ago, uh, this was when Kadima was in power, and Prime Minister Ehud Olmert appointed a, an academic named Daniel Friedman to be justice minister. And th this wasn't partisan politics. This was an academic who was coming in to really democratize Israel's judicial system. And he was attacked by the Supreme Court and attacked by the media as an enemy of democracy. And I went to uh, a relative of mine who was in law school and I asked, how is this justice minister being accused of harming democracy where what he's actually proposing would make the country more democratic? And of course, when I define democracy, 
I define democracy as a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under. And this person said to me, you're right, it doesn't make any sense. Now, this is somebody who grew up in Canada and came and went to law school in Israel. So I went to somebody else who was raised in Israel and went to law school. And I asked the same question. I said, how can this justice minister be accused of attacking and harming democracy when he's actually making the country more democratic? And the answer I got was very interesting. He said, Yehuda, it depends how you define democracy. If you define democracy as a system of government, you'd be right. But if you define democracy as a set of values, then you'd be wrong because the Supreme Court is viewed as the defender of a specific set of values in Israeli society. And those are the values of Western civilization. And I think the Supreme Court, to a certain extent, is viewed by many of the more westernized sectors of Israeli society as a fail-safe mechanism. Like, even if the population becomes too, quote-unquote, barbaric, even if it becomes, you know, the, uh, the Hilltop Youth and the Mezuzah Kissers and the Betar Yushalayim fans and all of the primitivim, mm-hmm. then we can still rely on the Supreme Court to protect our values, the values of Western civilization, and to maintain Israel's identity as an outpost of the West, an outpost of American power, perhaps, and not let this turn into this kind of fundamentalist Jewish country that we're afraid it might turn into if the wrong people have too many babies and those babies grow up and vote. We see that today in Israeli society. We yeah. see that conflict. Even, even the parliament itself, right? The Israeli Knesset, it's a British parliamentary system that was imposed on the population, which I understand. I mean, we're all geniuses in hindsight. I understand in 1948 coming out of the, the horrors and the tragedies of the Holocaust and being expelled from all sorts of different countries and coming into the land and also Jews living in the land of Israel for thousands of years being completely poor, coming and having to establish a country, a civilization, uh, while under threat and immediate attack from all the surrounding countries that were a lot stronger than us, I understand that we didn't have the time to properly have a conversation as to what type of society we want to create, what type of government we want to create. And right away, we immediately took a British parliamentary system, just, you know, replaced the seats with individuals that were living in Israel, changed the language to Hebrew, slapped on an Israeli flag and ran with it and said, yalla, go. But now is the no, time to have that Jewish decorations on the British mandate. We basically continued the mandate with Jewish decorations, called it a Jewish state. And of course, on a very deep level, Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel is something inherently holy, that regardless of the system, regardless of the laws, but now we actually want a system and laws and a legal structure that express our identity and express our values. And and that doesn't mean that that's not democratic in the way that people understand democracy when they understand it as a system of government that allows the population to have power. We're saying we want something that is more in tune with what the populations need, not only the native Jewish population, but also the Uzim, the Bedouin, the Palestinians, the, there are other minorities that live here as well. We need to create something that is Semitic, that is free, that is in tune with the way that the world has evolved, and that applies to the problems that exist micro and macro, and be able to create that together, uniting the population. And that is the conversation that has never taken place and a conversation we're trying to start in order to eventually get there. Right. We can say that the systems that are dominant today in the world might be arguably the best systems that have ever existed, but Israel came back to life in order to create something even better. And we have to believe that. And that, I think, is part of our post-colonial conversation, this conversation that we need to have now that we're home, now that we're back on our land. 
So that being said, we're building a movement to spread these ideas on university campuses. Uh, right now, due to the corona crisis plaguing the world, a lot of our activities are going to be online. Rudy and I are planning a webinar together, Bizrat Hashem, after Pesach on decolonizing Jewish identity. You know, a lot of the ideas that we've been discussing on, the, on this podcast about the post-colonial conversation that needs to take place, talk about how Jewish identity has been colonized, what decolonization and liberation look like for us in the 21st century. That's going to be after Pesach webinar together. Be sure to sign up. Also next week ahead of Pesach, I'm running a webinar on Jewish liberation then and now, where we're going to be addressing, first of all, what is Pesach all about? How do we understand Jewish liberation? What were some of the Jewish liberation movements that existed between the Bar Kokhba revolt and Zionism? What were some of the rival Zionist tendencies that created the friction that led us towards statehood? And what does Jewish liberation mean now? And that's next Monday. So lots going on, lots of webinars planned. Be sure to check out Vision Magazine on the regular. Subscribe, you'll get a reading list where you can see all of our recommended books that you can busy yourselves while in quarantine over Pesach, maybe read some of them with your families. Lots to discuss at the uh, Seder. You know, what are we going to be discussing at the Pesach Seder this year? Because this is a year unlike all previous years. Silver lining may be an opportunity for people to have deeper, more intimate conversations over how we're supposed to understand Jewish liberation today. What is the concept of freedom? How do we understand that? I mean, even, you know, Rudy, what you were talking about before, being independent of the United States and being independent of foreign agendas, this is a revolutionary concept for a lot of Jews. One thing I also think we shouldn't ignore because this podcast is being released on Chet Nisan, the eighth day of the month of Nisan, is that the eighth of Nisan is the Yom B'tirah, the anniversary of the hangings of the two Eliyahu's, Eliyahu Betsuri and Eliyahu Hakim, two boys with the same name who were sent by the Lehi, the Lochamecherut Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, to assassinate Lord Moyne, the highest ranking British official in the Middle East. They went to Cairo. They did succeed in assassinating him. They were caught uh, specifically because they refused to fire on an Egyptian policeman who was pursuing them on motorcycle, uh, which is also an interesting ideological point. The fighters for the freedom of Israel, the Stern Group, they refused to harm Egyptians because they viewed the Egyptian people as their natural allies. They saw the Egyptians as another Semitic people dominated by British imperialism, and they believed that Egyptians were natural allies in the anti-colonial struggle against England. And in fact, when the uh, two Eliyahu's were on trial in Cairo for the assassination, uh, they presented themselves with so much honor and dignity, and they were able to really clearly articulate our struggle for freedom against Britain, that even the Muslim Brotherhood at the University of Cairo organized demonstrations for their freedom. So they were executed on the 8th of Nisan in the year 1945, 75 years ago. And it was actually 30 years later in 1975 that Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had brought their bodies back from Cairo in a deal with Egypt following the Yom Kippur War. Rabin brought their bodies back from Cairo in order to give them a military burial at Har Herzl. And the chief rabbi of Israel at the time of Avadi Yosef said that the two Eliyahu's were like Shimon and Levi, who went out holy and came back pure. But the chief rabbi of England at the time, Rabbi Jacobowitz, 
condemn the state of Israel for giving two terrorists a military burial. So here we see a very, very deep machloket between the chief rabbi of Israel and the chief rabbi of England. And the chief rabbi of Israel in this case is really the chief rabbi of the nation of Israel, whereas the chief rabbi of England is a servant of the crown. He's the chief rabbi of the British Empire, the chief rabbi of the British royal family. Like he is their chief rabbi. And he's taking a very British position, right? They killed the British minister. And that's the context through which he's seeing this. Well, anyway, it's interesting that the Kadosh Baruch Hu decides the Machloket because Prime Minister Rabin sent a Knesset member named Yitzchak Shamir, who actually was the commander of the two Eliyahu's, who had sent them on their mission 30 years earlier. Rabin sends Shamir, also a future Prime Minister of Israel, to identify the bodies. And when he gets to our border with Egypt, which back then was the Suez Canal, because we had the Sinai, he almost faints because he sees that these two boys, Eliyahu Hakim and Eliyahu Betsuri, had not decomposed. Their bodies, their fingernails, their facial hair were exactly as they were at their execution 30 years earlier. And we actually learn in a few places in the Gemara and the Talmud that the martyrs of Israel, death cannot touch them. They don't decompose. So this is one of the rare examples in history, especially modern history, where we see the creator actually step in. We see Hashem actually intervene and actually decide the machloket between the chief rabbi of Israel and the chief rabbi of England. So if anybody doesn't know who the two Eliyahu's were, they should absolutely read The Deed by Gerald Frank. It's actually the first book I read when I became activated, when I got involved in all this. And if somebody doesn't feel they have the time or patience to read the deed, which everybody should now that everyone's in quarantine, absolutely go and read the deed. Anybody who subscribes to Vision Magazine and gets a reading list will see that the deed by Gerald Frank is at the top of the list. It's absolutely a great introductory book into Jewish national consciousness and Israeli politics and gives you a great background. It's actually written by an American journalist who covered their trial. Not a Jew, not a Palestinian, not an Englishman, but a journalist from the United States who was witness to a lot of this and did a lot of really great research, wrote a fantastic book. It reads like a thriller, The Deed by Gerald Frank. And if you absolutely don't think you have the ability to order and get through that book, then at the very least, check out the article, Two Eliyahu's at Vision Magazine. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me and doing this. Uh, again, listeners should look out for the webinars coming up, my webinar ahead of Pesach on Jewish liberation then and now, and on the webinar that Rudy and I will be doing together on decolonizing Jewish identity right after Pesach. So look out for those webinars coming up. And of course, subscribe to Vision Magazine and like us and share this podcast all over the place. This is Yudah Kohen and Rudy Rachman broadcasting from the land of Israel, Yudah in the Gofna Hills, Rudy in Caesarea. And this is the Vision Movement, the Next Stage podcast. Be sure to check out our show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 24.